Welcome to the last podcast um, of the series for this academic year. We're going to take an opportunity to look back on a year of this economic crisis and reflect on the ways in which it will reshape the way we think about certain economic theories and models, as well as how it is that we regulate markets. So once again, I'm Linda Yu. I'm a fellow in economics at St. Edmund Hall in the University of Oxford. And my new book comes out this month, uh, The Law and Economics of Globalization, New Challenges for a World in Flux. My name is Jonathan McKay. I'm president of Kellogg College uh, at Oxford. And my book on globalization a couple of years ago foretold many of the problems we're now suffering from. I'm Martin Slater. I'm tutor in economics at St. Edmund Hall. Shall we start by thinking about some of the the big debates which have come about um, as a result of this crisis in terms of the way that central banks do their business of running monetary policy. So one of the big issues that's come up is should the bank take on more of the regulatory functions um, that, for instance, in Britain, the Bank of England had before it was made independent in 1997? Are we going back towards a model in which central banks shall no longer just target inflation in the way that they manage the uh, monetary system, but rather take on regulatory functions and also look at asset bubbles. Yeah, I would say that there's two um, points there, both of which are, are important. Firstly, on the the role that the uh, central bank should play in, in regulating. I mean, the obvious point to make is they couldn't possibly have done any worse than the people who were actually in charge. And Gordon Brown said that... Uh, uh, the light-touch regulation he had been boasting about during his tenure as, as Chancellor didn't mean soft-touch regulation, but I think it's clear to everybody now that that's precisely what it, it did mean, that had been soft-touch regulation. So I certainly don't think there would be any um, problem going back to the, the pre- that previous um, regime. The, the other point, though, is about what the um, authorities should be targeting. Should it just be inflation or should it be um, employment, growth, other factors? And there I think, yeah, there's no question. It makes sense to, to take a, a rounded view um, of all the factors together. I mean, it's quite wrong just to target uh, inflation on its own. It just doesn't make sense just to look at, at one um, factor like that in isolation. In addition to those two points, I'd, I'd make one other um, which is that we should also go back to uh, reintroducing some of the regulations which were swept away because they they were thought to be um, unnecessary. Uh, Regulations which have been introduced quite deliberately over the the years during the the 1930s, 50s, 60s in order to stabilise the the global economy and national economies precisely to avert the sort of um, crises we're we're now suffering from. I think because people thought that that the lessons had been learnt uh, there'd be no returns to the 1930s. The, the long post-war boom seemed to be um, more or less stable, despite one or two relatively short, short-run recessions. But in retrospect, I think that there clearly was good reason for having separated the, the investment banks from um, the other high street banks, and that that um, should be followed again. Uh, but also the fact that there were controls on on short-term movements of finance across the world for purely speculative purposes, and there was good reason for having that, and the fact that all those exchange controls were abolished during the the 1980s and and 90s obviously made a lot of money for quite a lot of people, um, but didn't really serve, I think we could now say in retrospect, any great economic purpose, and I think there's a a strong argument for reintroducing some of those uh, controls on short-term speculative movements of capital. Yes, I I think as well as the the question of uh, different possible targets, of course, if one's going back to older methods of central bank operation, um, one one goes back to an era where, indeed, central banks didn't operate according to laid-down rules, which, of course, became very popular from the 1970s and 80s onwards, that uh, a lot of the power of the Bank of England in the past was that the the bank authorities had quite a lot of discretion uh, indeed to produce certain surprises to the private sector which was part of their 
their armoury. And of course, that has very much disappeared in, in recent decades, that the central bank is supposed to be entirely predictable, following a, a, some kind of prescribed rule. Uh, and uh, that may well be something that people will want to consider uh, a bit more in future. I think, Martin, that's the time inconsistency problem, isn't it? <laughs> well, that, yes, indeed. This is, all goes back to Kidland and Prescott mm. and people like that. And uh, obviously there are some advantages in this, Just, but uh, there are always advantages and disadvantages, just mm. as Jonathan was saying, that uh, a lot of the... Um, moves to reduce a number of controls like exchange controls and uh, and other kinds of more direct intervention into what banks are doing were of course thought to be advantageous in themselves uh, removing those controls at the time um, so there's a balance of advantages and there's obviously no way in which there's some kind of perfect regulatory system that will avoid all problems but uh, uh, you know I think uh, clearly the the most recent system where we've had a, a, a sort of highly constrained central bank um, engaged in uh, targeting really only one variable uh, has found to be rather lacking. Mm. I'd agree with that. Um, I think when the central banks really more moved towards independence in the early 1990s, um, they coincided with this global period of very, very benign inflationary conditions. So throughout the 90s and the noughties, there was quite a claim about how it was the, that it was the reconstituted central banks which were the uh, reason for the great moderation, the very benign business cycle, the strong deflationary environment. And I think to a certain extent, central bankers were misled by the fact that inflation remained so low while growth was so strong. So they never felt the need really to raise interest rates because the macro factors they looked at seemed to be so benign. But actually what was happening was emerging markets around the world, China, India, Eastern Europe, shedding communism, rejoined the global economy and they had a very strong deflationary effect on manufactured goods prices, which then put downward pressure on import prices, pushing down inflation in the rich economies. So while the central banks were targeting that, I think in many ways they missed the fact there was a lot of liquidity in the system and because they controlled the price of money by setting interest rates. It was a lot of liquidity on the basis of very cheap credit and cheap money. And when the, this money began to get fueled into the housing market in the United States, the buy-to-let market in the UK, and of course funding wholesale money markets, which then um, projected this liquidity throughout um, uh, European markets, I think there is a link to what central banks were looking at. And the result, which was um, in Alan Greenspan's phrase, keeping interest rates too low for too long. So I think looking ahead, there must be a good argument for thinking about having a much more open or global set of variables to target because asset bubbles are endemic and, and just sticking to a rigid central bank rule is not enough um, to actually um, address that. Related to this issue of central bank independence, the British Chancellor has stated that even at the European and American level, there is general agreement in principle that we ought to look harder at asset bubbles. But the reality of how you lean against asset bubbles is a lot more difficult. Yes, but one problem is that uh, the governments are obviously in the short term uh, gain from asset bubbles, at least as they um, manifest themselves in the housing market because um, increasing house prices can fuel uh, economic growth for several years on, on end and certainly you know, some of the apparently strongest um, economic cycles in, in recent history um, have been, in retrospect you can see, actually uh, fueled not by investments in manufacturing, expansion of traded goods sector and so on, but actually growth of house prices that people have taken the value out of by increasing their, their mortgages, their, their loans, in order to spend on, on consumer goods. But of course, as that's happening, well, government takes the glory for having uh, continual um, economic growth, which is maybe something we should question in any case. Um, but firstly, they, they get the credit for that, and then of course they get the, the uh, tax revenues from it as well. There's a, a political argument uh, which makes suppressing asset bubbles difficult like that. But 
But also I think that there's the economic technical problem of uh, just how you do it without creating as harmful effects as a collapse of the asset bubble without intervention at some stage. And of course this has indeed, that indeed very much conditioned Greenspan's view uh, in the past, that uh, he was very worried that uh, uh, taking action to stem what might appear to be a growing bubble would actually push the economy into recession uh, at a time when you wouldn't want it. And again, I suppose this comes back to the, again, this, this problem that we just talked about, uh, about a very simplistic view of the central, where the central bank is really only looking at one dimension of the economy uh, and it only has one or very limited range of targets. That will, will work so long as the, your, your basic model of the economy is a very ideal one in which most things do go up and down at the right time and in line with each other. And, it, and, and the, the question about whether the economy is overheating or not is an entirely one-dimensional question. Um, in practice, as we can see, you may find that the economy is overheating in one particular area, i.e. the asset bubble, whereas real employment is still not really terribly, uh, terribly solid. And the authorities have this terrible concern that if they actually take steps to dampen down the asset bubble, which normally will be something like an interest rate rise, this, of course, will cause the real economy, which uh, they still would like to encourage, to go down at that point, and of course that's something that is a, is a very difficult decision to make. Mm. I would expand that globally, so <laughs> this talk about reforming how it is that policy is made, it has to be done at a national level, the regional level, the European Union is an example, and at the international level. So this multi-layer of governance is one of the reasons why this financial regulation debate, this policy debate is so challenging. Um, but it occurs to me that even if you came up with a global regulator, early warning system based in the Bank for International Settlements, which warned against asset bubbles building up in different countries as a result of global imbalances. So, so too much liquidity in the U.S. wholesale money market is causing an asset bubble in China next time. Would the Americans really agree to raise interest rates to, to dampen an asset bubble in China? I find this to be extremely difficult, and, and I think this international coordination part, I think, adds another dimension of how, of even if they could agree that you needed to guard against asset bubbles, how would this actually work um, in practice? Well, partly I think it goes back to um, needing quantitative controls as well as price controls and having, having exchange controls, um, capital controls. I mean, it's been, been um, I've heard it described as, as the current, current situation with, where all the controls abolished of trying to uh, um, carry a, a tray full of water and as soon as it starts sloshing to one side, of course, you're, you're doomed and it will all go. And that's precisely why you have buffers in the system to prevent the water sloshing about the tray or the, the, the huge billions or trillions of, of uh, dollars and pounds um, sloshing around the, the um, globe in, in a matter of hours. Um, and during the, the uh, financial crisis, the so-called Asian financial um, uh, crisis back in 1997, um, Malaysia was uh, um, heavily criticised for introducing exchange controls in order to, to protect themselves from the crisis. And in fact, they were sort of downgraded by the, the uh, ratings agencies because people had come to believe this, uh, this myth that uh, you couldn't have these sort of controls anymore. And in fact, of course, it, it was actually quite successful in, in protecting the, the domestic economy uh, at that time. So I think you know that that is why um, these these uh, sort of controls can be useful. And picking up on a point you're making earlier about um, the apparently benign situation people are in over the last few years, and so people are getting lulled into a, a sense of full security. I think although people had referred to sort of globalisation, people hadn't really appreciated the risk that the global economy had been put under by the, the uh, uh, lack of these controls, precisely because the situation seemed to be relatively benign, and even when the crisis was breaking, the global credit um, crunch was, was breaking, there was still uh, a widespread belief that, that it was a cause and therefore it would be more or less um, contained to the US, Britain, um, one or two other countries. But the, the, the basically strong economic powers 
Germany or, or China or whatever wouldn't necessarily be so effective uh, affected but of course the 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 uh, just sheer scale of these uh, um, global financial um, flows have really disrupted you know the entire global situation one of the other tools which had been used in this crisis um, by central banks is quantitative easing this is of course very reminiscent of open market operations. This says this is the control of the money supply rather than the price of money, which is interest rates. Are we going back to the 1980s and 70s then, when when really money supply like M2 aggregates were were targeted, or is this something fairly unique to this particular crisis because of the credit crunch? So therefore, central banks were just bypassing the credit system to directly inject money into the monetary base and to buy a corporate bonds and, and what have you? Or is this another change to monetary policy making looking ahead? Well, I, I wouldn't think we're going all the way back to uh, the experiments of the 1980s, which of course had a great deal of problems. Uh, the reason they had a great deal of problems was that financial innovation was occurring mm-hmm. at quite a rapid rate. And now you know, any kind of policy which is uh, focused very heavily on quantitative monetary aggregates has this problem of um, which monetary aggregate you're going to focus on and what are the relationships between the monetary aggregates, which tend to be changing all the time, and indeed tend to change rather faster the more you lean on one particular monetary aggregate as people want to substitute into the other thing. And that, of course, was, was what happened to the Thatcherite uh, experiment in, in the UK in the 1980s. That they decided to target Sterling M3 at the time, which was their preferred thing. Um, and actually, they found that very difficult Although, overall, I think uh, people would agree that they did run a fairly tight monetary policy, but it, didn't, it wasn't one that was very heavily under their control. Um, so I think that, um, that that's the main difficulty of going back to uh, a quantitative target uh, regime. But, of course, you see, if we do... F- go back in in several other aspects to earlier types of banking, you see, particularly if we start to introduce quite strong regulations about the separation of particular types of banking, you see, going back to the Glass-Steagall Act again, uh, indeed suggesting that there are certain banks who produce certain kinds of assets and liabilities and there are other financial institutions that have got other different assets and liabilities, and we can then define that there's only this particular narrow group of banks that are actually really involved in producing money, which is what we want to target. This, of course, is the is the world that the kind of monetary targeter was hoping that they were going to operate in. So it could be that if regulation goes all the way back to, to producing sort of fairly rigid controls on what banks and other particular financial institutions can do, then one will be able to get a rather uh, rather tighter hold on monetary aggregates again. But given the possibilities of financial interve- innovation and uh, a lot of flexibility in the financial system that we have had since the 1980s, then it has been quite difficult, I think, to have a very clear view about which monetary aggregate is not too slippery to hold. <laughs> Yes, and it's important to remember that, that what's being attempted now with money supply is the exact opposite of what was being attempted by um, the Thatcher um, government, who was um, trying to restrict money supply because it was said that would cure inflation um, relatively painlessly, it was claimed at the time. I mean, that proved completely false, and actually what, what uh, the policies did was, was drive up interest rates and the, the currency became overvalued, and both of those together pushed the economy into a, a very... Uh, severe recession. I mean, this time it's the exact opposite. They're, they're trying to um, expand the, uh, the money supply to get money into the system, um, but partly, actually, for, for a similar sort of reason because of the, the interest rates, because interest rates have been cut virtually to zero around the world, um, and yet it's been, been characterised as, as sort of pushing a bit of string. Um, um, it's no good having sort of 
a zero price for money uh, unless the money is actually available. And the problem is the banks aren't um, providing the credit because they're, they're trying to um, recover their, their own balance sheets. So I think the, the important point is it's, it's trying to do the opposite of what uh, Thatcher government did in trying to um, expand the uh, money supply, make money available because the banks currently aren't making it available. There's been a lot of debate about how it is we regulate systemically important and large banks. Glass-Steagall is one that you mentioned. Another popularly discussed concept is that banks which are too big to fail are just too big. Um, and I just wondered if we could spend just a few minutes on what kinds of sensible um, parameters one might put on this issue, deriving from the way economists look at it. So let's try and step away from the politicians' views on this, which I think are themselves quite divided. Yes, I, I think that there's no question that uh, um, any economy gets itself into a difficulty if the banks uh, are too big to fail, uh, so they literally can't fail. And it's um, been particularly ironic when the uh, people in charge of the banks have managed to devise incredibly intricate and, and very lucrative contracts for themselves which reward themselves for, for risk. And if they take a, a gamble of big risk, bank makes a lot of money, they, they've been paid huge uh, amounts in, in return. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that makes some sense provided it's, it's a genuine two-way bet. And if they, the risk fail, then they um, then then they uh, uh, pay the cost, you know, them, themselves personally with a, a pay cut and the, the uh, organisation um, going bankrupt, which is how it uh, it uh, the system is supposed to work. Of course, when you've got banks who are too big to fail, it just exacerbates that problem of, of one-way bets, knowing that actually if it all goes wrong, well, the government is obliged to step in and use hundreds of billions of dollars or pounds worth of our, our taxpayers' money to, to prop the bank up. Um, and so I think there's obviously a strong argument uh, in favour of, of that uh, point about preventing banks um, becoming too big uh, to fail, prevent, preventing them becoming that big if they then have to be uh, rescued. But also I think that that's one of the um, arguments in favour of separating um the, the types of the two types of banks, the argument being the, sort of the, the high street bank that that people have their life savings in, individual individuals have their life savings in, have their their small loans in, and so on. Um, that's relatively safe operation. And if something disastrous, unforeseen goes wrong, then there maybe is something uh, to be said for for the, the government stepping in and, and keeping that operation going. Whereas the other type of banking operation, which is literally more like a, a casino operation should be treated as such, and, and those that succeed will fine, let them um, carry on, those that fail will, then they fail. Um, so I think that's, that, you know, there's two points really. Um, one is, is true, preventing any sort of monopoly company in any sector getting so big, but, but also separating out the two types so that you can step in and, and make sure that, you know, the small save of the um, mass of the population can carry on their banking activities, whereas the, the genuine casino type operations can be treated as such. Martin, is there a way to do this to prevent a secondary banking crisis, though, as we've had before in Britain? Well, that, that of course, is the, as it were, the counter-example to the Glass-Steagall view, that if you think about what happened in uh, the 1970s, where <clears throat> we didn't have, actually, the Glass-Steagall Act in the UK, but we did have a, a similar separation that, uh, at the time, the financial markets were not highly competitive. They were segmented by the Bank of England into into banks of different functions. So we had high street banks and we had merchant banks and we had uh, other more specialised financial institutions. Um, and what happened there was a rather interesting situation where um, the government at the time began to feel that, for its own purposes, it thought that too much money was going into property development at the time. And the Bank of England at that time did have the power to prevent banks from taking activities that, they, that the Bank of England didn't like, and so it gave instructions to the main banks not to involve themselves in this. Um, and they duly did not actually engage in this business, but of course what they tended to do, and what the financial system fairly soon managed to evolve, was a system in which the surpluses of the high street banks were simply lent through 
direct or indirect means to other institutions which are outside the Bank of England's control, which did indeed put the money eventually into the property development market. And when the property boom eventually collapsed, these institutions first went bankrupt, and then their bankruptcy, of course, brought into question eventually the high street banks who had lent them the money in the first place. And this, of course, one of the reasons why the Bank of England began to move away from this kind of directive regulation, because um, one view put was at the time was that this actually produced a situation which was possibly even in some ways more dangerous than, than the alternative, and that was that the high street banks didn't actually know what had happened to their money. So um, it came as quite a surprise to them when they found that they were in a particularly vulnerable position. And that did, did produce a, a potentially very dangerous crisis in which you know, one or more high street banks could have gone bankrupt. In, in those days it was rather more quietly managed and, uh, and uh, gradually got out of that kind of problem. Um, but um, yes, I mean, the, the, there is that, that problem with, uh, with separating functions. C clearly, one cannot separate functions completely. Th there is bound to be some kind of um, uh, interrelationship between the different parts of the financial market. The question then is, is it actually better to segment it into, as it were, separate I suppose people might even use the pejorative term silos, uh, where people don't know so much of what, what's going on. Or should we have the um, more recent model of very comprehensive financial institutions which have a foot in all these things, and so in principle ought to have a better idea of what their overall riskiness is, although in practice it doesn't seem to have worked out that way. Uh, if, of course, we go back into uh, a model where we do think that banks should be more specialised, should be smaller, then, of course, these systemic risks, I think, won't disappear as a result of that. And that brings us back, of course, to a much greater emphasis on the need for this macroprudential regulation. You see, if the banks aren't going to be able to handle this within their boundaries, then the Bank of England or some kind of regulator has a much greater responsibility to make sure that these smaller and by, def by implication therefore less powerful players aren't actually ploughing their own particular furrow but um, oblivious to, to wider dangers. Now going back to sort of banks that are too big to fail, it may be that size isn't important or it may be that you know what's what people are really saying is that there's a particular function that we can't be allowed to fail. You see, so we we all see that, the, that there's a certain way in which the banking system as a whole produces a public utility, um, and it is the, the kind of the integrity of that public utility that we can't really risk. You know, there has to be a kind of uh, freely functioning payment mechanism. A kind of store of value, companies and individuals are going to have to have resources that they can meet their bills with on time. And of course it was the, the prospect of all that gumming up that was so frightening back in September, October last year. Um, now whether, you know, if you've actually got regulation of the system, um, whether size of the players in it is important is, is I think, as Jonathan mentioned the, the word monopoly. I think you know what we've got is, is a problem of, of monopoly power of a small number of institutions dominating this utility. Um, and I suppose that might, if you think about other models, take you back into the ideas, the, the models that were batted around in privatisation of areas like gas and electricity and um, uh, telecoms and uh, railways. Is it the case that we should actually ensure that the that kind of basic utility function either stays in public hands or under highly regulated control, um, and then we just let individual private sector players, as it were, use the network, as they, they can use the gas pipeline, we can use the electricity grid, um, without too much worry about what, what they're doing? Or, or do we actually have to keep uh, the whole thing 
sort of fairly heavily determined um, in order to, to stop crises occurring. See, the evidence from privatization is rather mixed. If you think about some of those kind of industries, well, telecommunications seems to have been quite a success of actually privatizing and letting a lot of competition go and in, in things like that. At the other extreme, railways would not, I think, be considered a great success, where, again, we have a, a network company which is uh, supposed to be protecting the public utility and then operating companies which could be considered to be much more competitive and they could be free to succeed or fail. Well, you know, we see that doesn't that doesn't kind of work terribly well there. But uh, I think it's probably those kind of industrial economics issues that might actually... Um, need some kind of looking at as well as the purely financial one. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with both of what you've said. I mean, I think this crisis showed how important the banking sector is and they hold our deposits, they run our payments, they're essentially the lifeblood of the economy. Um, they will not be allowed to fail and that inherent uh, moral hazard makes them more risky. Um, and I think if that was the case, and I think it is the case, um, I think there is a lot to be said for having either a new type of model to run the system, um, or at the very least what's being talked about now, which is to make them self-insure. If they're too big to fail and they need to be bailed out, then they need to pay into a bailout fund, a tax on their, um, on their you know, whether it's in the form of capital requirements or, or some other way of actually making them pay for the risk they clearly uh, will transfer onto um, the taxpayer. It's very similar actually to a deposit insurance system, which is funded by the bank so that if one of them fails, they draw on it and our deposits are protected. So I think there have been a lot of complaints in this crisis about banking being favored. And I think what it's ultimately come to is that banking is special in the way um, because of, of the function of money in an economy, in which case I think they do need to be regulated differently. And I would like to see them take on a lot more of the risk of failure. Yes, that's right. And uh, But it's important to remember that uh, the banks have had this special place, particularly in Britain. I mean, there's been a long-standing problem ever since uh, industri industrialization really, in Britain of the City of London, the financial sector, being, being so dominant to an extent that there never was the case in France or Germany or Sweden or, or um, other countries. And I mean, I think this is just, you know, the latest example of, of that problem. And it's been said time again that, that there's been a need for um, the British economy to diversify away from the financial sector towards uh, manufacturing non-financial um, services uh, for decades and problems of, of the financial uh, sector of the City of London not properly funding, particularly small and uh, medium-sized enterprises, for understandable reasons, because they're bigger fish to fry. They're basically uh, developed as a global um, uh, global operation. Um, so it's important to remember that it's not just a, a problem with sort of banking in the abstract. It is a, a particular, well, it's a problem that the UK particularly suffers from. The, the other big economic policy area, um, which has been heavily debated, is this use of government spending in a recession. So the debate as to whether or not we ought to deficit spend has come to the fore with big differences of opinion again between the Americans and the Brits on one side and the French and the Germans on the others. Has this crisis um, led us to think differently about the Keynesian notions of deficit spending? Are we going to look at fiscal policy differently in the future or should we? Well, it certainly led to the um, name Keynes coming back into uh, um, uh, newspapers, but, but actually I, I'd say that it hasn't gone nearly far enough. I mean, I think what's really needed is for people to go back and reread Keynes's general theory of employment, interest and money, published in 1936 at the depths of that 1930s recession, to see what he was actually arguing. Um, it, well, it was actually very um, radical, very perceptive, I think, gives a very good explanation as to what's happening to the world economy at the moment. Um, but the problem was that um, he didn't think these things, the, these um, economic relations could be uh, quantified um, mathematically and modelled uh, discreetly. And so it was very unsatisfactory for the economic profession, um, particularly yeah, the academics who wanted to, to model it in their textbooks. So the, the textbook version of Keynesianism that I and other people were, were, were taught in, in the 60s and 70s was actually um, quite different from, from Keynes. And um, the, the fundamental point, I'd, I'd say, is as follows, that 
uh, what Keynes argued in the 1930s to try and explain what was going on and why there was a global recession, why there was mass unemployment, was that what really drove the system was effective demand, uh, and the, the part of effective demand which really fluctuated was investment. So it was really investment which, which drove the system. That determined how much demand there was. That determined how much um, um, the, the level of goods and services provided to meet that demand. That determined how many people were employed and therefore whether you had mass unemployment or not. And what's uh, fascinating is that description as to actually why there was mass unemployment in the 1930s when economists up to then had said you couldn't have mass unemployment. That description actually didn't mention the labour market. It was all about investment, creating demand, creating um, production of goods and services to meet that demand. Um, and the, the, the problem, as I was just, just saying, um, for the attempt to put that into sort of textbook fashion is the, the real driver for investment levels were, were expectations as to what the, the level of demand would be in six months or, or two years when, when the, the goods would come on stream from the, uh, the, the new factories you're planning on investing in and so on. Expectations are what Keynes described as animal spirits and so on, which is obviously very um, unquantifiable. And Keynes said explicitly that, that he thought this you know, really was unquantifiable. It wasn't just that like flipping a coin, you, you you didn't know whether it would come up at heads or tails. It was actually you didn't know what the probability were of different states of the world and outbreaks of wars and so on. I mean, literally unknowable things. So, you know, I would say, you know, it's good that people have, have, uh, have started uh, mentioning the, the um, name of Keynes again. But actually, the real lesson of Keynes goes far beyond the, the point that government can serve a, a useful role by stepping in to boost demand when there's a, um, a collapse to um, remembering the real driver is actually that level of aggregate demand and crucially investment and therefore expectations as to, as to what will happen in the future rather than the sort of textbook model that is all determined in the labour market by relative prices and wages and so on and everything flows from that which uh, is completely the wrong way around of looking at it. Yes, uh, I think probably in one of the big lessons of the last couple of years is is, as it were, the return to prominence of inevitable uncertainty, which I think uh, is what Jonathan was saying is a very big part of the Keynesian view of investment. Uh, Now, it's understandable that, uh, for modelling purposes, one likes to feel that one's on top of uncertainty, and there are various theoretical devices one can use to to make it look as though you're on top of uncertainty. And there are lots of practical financial devices. Obviously, the financial markets have developed to try and deal with uncertainty, insurance of various kinds and derivatives uh, and those kinds of things. Um, But in the end, I think what the recent experience has shown is that you can't get rid of it completely. And uh, indeed, if you do think so... Uh, you know, you're probably going to be bitten by a very nasty surprise like the last year or two has shown. So, yes, I think that um, in that sense, um, there's a, a big lesson here that one cannot just rely on some kind of perfect system to handle all these kind of issues, and there will be the need for judgment and uh, discretion uh, to take us over some fairly rocky uh, rocky activity. I think it, it's, it's interesting also, I think if you, you look back on people's descriptions of the last, say, couple of decades, which might have been thought as, uh, in one sense, have been thought of as a sort of very benign period, um, uh, other people writing about exactly the same period will say that well, if you look at the statistics, this, of course, was not a very benign period. One had enormous international crises appearing regularly at sort of five, six, seven-year intervals. Uh, and uh, it really is quite surprising that people uh, develop themselves into a mindset that they'd actually sussed the kind of problem out and that actually worked out how to, to regulate the, the global economy. And um, at each international crisis, quite lucky to contain them at the times, uh, and eventually uh, the crisis got bigger and bigger, um, and we've had a, just run through a very, very big one indeed, 
And the prospects of the future, clearly, we've got no reasonable ground for believing that this is not going to happen again. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think um, I think one thing which is obvious is, um, um, you know, some type of bubble seems to be fairly endemic. And if you describe you, just if you attribute the bubbles to economies overheating the peak of a cycle, then in a sense, the business cycle just runs. The question is, what drives it? Is it Keynesian deficient demand, as Jonathan has outlined? Is that now more in vogue than, say, real business cycle theory, which is exogenous supply-side technological shocks? Um, and and so I think, unfortunately, when uh, the British Prime Minister, when he when he was Chancellor, claimed to have uh, ended boom and bust, that was just very unfortunate because I think the business cycle runs, but it just runs. Um, in different ways with different parameters. Another way of saying it is that every financial crisis is actually different. Mm-hmm. And every model we tend to devise to regulate a crisis was obviously based on the determinants of the last crisis. So we've got this crisis now. There was the dot-com bubble back in 2000, 2001, which was preceded by the collapse of long-term capital management, a hedge fund in the U.S., run by no less than Nobel laureates in economics. That, of course, came on the aftermath of the Asian financial crisis, which had spread from East Asia to Turkey and Russia and Argentina and Brazil. And um, and, and that was preceded by the peso crisis in Mexico in 1994, which was itself preceded by the uh, second-generation currency crisis of the Asian financial crisis with this, the third. And the second-generation crisis was the exchange rate mechanism in Europe which failed in 1992, which itself was preceded by the SNL loan scandal in the United States, which was itself preceded by the Latin American currency first-generation crisis in 81-82. So perhaps a lesson that we've learned is that we don't really understand what drives business cycles. Um, but let me, I just, I just want to bring it back for a moment to the kind of fiscal debate that's being had, because I think this one is quite, it's become quite a dividing line for um, different policymakers around the world, which is, should the government borrow to spend during a recession? Well, I think the answer to that is, is yes. Um, the, 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 the argument against borrowing, the argument against deficit spending, is that uh, in an ideal world, deficit spending ought to be counterproductive because you have things like Ricardian equivalents, um, far-sighted uh, transactors will see that deficits have to be repaid at some time. So uh, we would not necessarily feel we're any better off now because we know we're going to have to pay it back later. Uh, but of course, Ricardian equivalence relies on, essentially, a system of perfect capital markets. Now, the thing we quite obviously don't have at the moment is perfect capital markets. Um, so in a situation where you're being disrupted by the, um, the failure of capital markets, um, it's not terribly surprising, I think, to, to see that uh, deficit financing will have positive effects. And I think, you know, I think that that will come to be fairly clearly accepted in, in a few years' time. Uh, the, the obvious danger of deficit financing, uh, particularly at the levels governments have had to do it is um, is whether this is actually going to produce debt levels that are in some sense unsustainable and are themselves uh, a drag on confidence which leads you back into the, the Keynesian investment uh, determination kind of activity. That's clearly I think the difficult issue at the moment, and I don't think one can easily say whether the levels of debt currently projected uh, are going to take us into that kind of territory or not. I mean, one can say at the moment um, the UK and the US governments have not had great difficulty in selling the debt that they are selling at the moment, um, but that's that only takes you so far. The, the, the big problem here is whether maybe at some time in the future uh, the markets, for one reason or another, and we can't really predict why, maybe nothing to do with uh, the UK economy, 
but for some reason their, their particular appetite for holding all this uh, British government debt uh, disappears. And then, of course, the, the British government will be in the classic sort of indebted position of somebody who, who was uh, encouraged by financial institutions to take on all this debt. And they said at the time that was fine by them, uh, but at a later stage you find that perhaps it's not fine by them after all. Um, and you know, I do, just don't know the answer to that uh, at the moment. Uh, looking historically, one can see that actually the levels of debt even in the UK, as projected, are not historically without precedent. They're clearly a lot higher than the aspirations we have had in the last 20 years. Um, but uh, countries have, um, the UK and other countries, have uh, had higher levels of debt uh, without uh, great disasters. Japan, for instance, has much, much higher proportion of debt to its GDP even than, than the projections in the UK and the US. Mm. Nearly 200% of GDP, by last count. Yes, I'd agree with that. I mean, I mean the, the basic economic point that's important to emphasise is that, which is one of the points Keynes was making in the 1930s uh, recession, which is if, if governments try and cut their spending during the recession, the danger is that can actually make the recession worse. Obviously, that depresses demands, not just because the government's spending less, but then um, people have expectations that the recession is going to get worse, so they um, decide to save a bit more, and so they spend less, and so um, they demand less, and so more more um, factories and shops close, and the recession deepens. And the result of that is, ironically, the government deficit goes up rather than down. I mean, that's the, the, the basic point. So even if we're all agreed that the aim is has to be to reduce the government deficit, the question is how to do it, and cutting government spending during a recession won't necessarily do it. It might actually um, exacerbate the recession and actually increase the deficit that the government has. Um, so that, that's the you know fundamental um, point to bear in mind. I think then the question is, well, what should the government be spending the mo- money on during the recession? You know, Should it be on bonuses for the bankers who are running the nationalised banks or should it be investment in the productive infrastructure to try to develop new green technologies and so on and obviously the way I phrase the choice I say I favour the the latter Uh, not only because it's good for the economy but crucially um, it's important that the government develops the productive infrastructure new technologies which will then crowd in um, investment from um, private companies who will see new markets developing, new new areas for potential um, investment. I mean, that's the that's the crucial thing in terms of developing um, um, sustainable growth out of a recession, which in turn will bring in increased tax revenues. And of course, once the economy is uh, recovering, then will allow government to uh, to cut spending. Hope and again, important to cut spending on things which won't jeopardise the um, recession, but things which are. Um, in the UK, maybe the ID cards or Trident nuclear missiles or, or whatever, um, rather than cutting things like the railways or, or uh, investments in green technologies and so on. So, you know, to answer your, your question about uh, um, sort of Keynesian deficit financing, I, I think you know the basic point is is yes, cutting government spending during the recession might make matters worse. The the key question, uh, the key issue, is to make sure that the government spending is invested in productive areas. Mm. It reminds me of a saying um, that politicians banter around, which is whatever your opponent wants to do is called spending. What you want to do is investment. I think if you really do invest <laughs> with payoffs in the future, there's, there is this idea of crowding in where public spending on infrastructure and, and other things can make private spending more efficient. If you build a high-fiber optic network, any private firm which locates there and uses it obviously will be more incentivized to invest and get more out of more return out of their investment. Whereas the um, the the usual expectation from high levels of government indebtedness is with a fixed stock of savings, you will have a increase in interest rates, which then crowd out um, private investment. So it is, I think, in a sense, the crowding in versus the crowding out argument. 
Macroeconomics has always been a very interesting subject because the models and the theories evolve with uh, changes in, in the way that economies are actually run. And I think this is a particularly fascinating time because this particular crisis has raised a lot of questions about the fundamental ways in which we run monetary policy, fiscal policy, regulate financial markets, and contend with a globalized economy, which um, uh, has its benefits, but also raises a different slew of challenges. And the summer will be uh, quite uh, telling as we hear more and more about policy pronouncements, about uh, how we're going to reform these models and theories. Um, and I hope that uh, academics will also chip in uh, to, to uh, help formulate new models and theories um, going forward. Yes, and, and I hope um, everyone will put pressure on um, governments and other authorities to actually adopt them. I think one big danger now is as soon as the uh, economy seems to be recovering, um, those who have a vested interest in the previous setup will, will say, well, we managed to polite of this, everything's basically all right, and return to business as normal, uh, risking the same sort of um, horrors in, in 10 or 15 uh, years' time. So I think it is important that, that the necessary reforms are driven through, both globally and in individual countries. Yes, I think politicians and practitioners' interests in theory are obviously rather driven by the needs of the moment, and as Jonathan says, well, if, if it looks as though for practical purposes, uh, the, the crisis stage is over, then I, I fear one will find that the, the practitioners lose a lot of interest in the theoretical underpinnings of, of what we've been going through. I think the important thing for the, thing for the future is, is to consider theoretically um, whether our stance with regard to regulation and policy is one in which uh, our background theory of the economy is one in which the economy is relatively stable and just needs a little nudging every now and again um, to, to keep it on the right path, or whether the, the theoretical understanding of the economy uh, really points to rather more significant flaws in the, in the economic economy which actually do need some rather serious and long-term interventions, which some of which we've been discussing here. And I think that, that from the point of view of theorists, I think that that's the, the kind of thing that they should be looking for in the next few years. Well, there's some thoughts to chew over over the summer. Um, thank you very much for listening to our series uh, for this academic year, and uh, we hope you'll come back for the next series uh, starting in the autumn.